the old pilot's plain tales above the Battle of the Somme. The First World War Battle of the Somme continues to this day to fascinate and appall in equal measures. Much has been written about the ground war, the first day of which saw the greatest number of British casualties that had occurred before in the entire history of the British Army. 19,240 were dead and 38,230 injured. The fighting over a 16-mile front lasted almost five months, after which the Allied troops had advanced about six miles. The butcher's bill of casualties was horrendous. The combined Commonwealth countries' number reached nearly 60,000, but was dwarfed by the United Kingdom's casualty number of over 350,000 men. When totaled with those Frenchmen who fell, the Allied number reached 632,907, a number almost equaled by the German losses. As one German officer wrote, Some, die ganze Geschichte der Welt Some, the whole history of the world cannot contain a more ghastly world. The battle opened on the 1st of July 1916 with a massed explosion that ranks amongst the largest non-nuclear explosions in history and was then considered the loudest human-made sound to date audible beyond London 160 miles, 261 kilometers away. British tunneling units from the Royal Engineers had secretly completed mine shafts, some over a thousand feet, 300 meters long, that ran under no man's land to finish beneath the German trenches, where they eventually laid 19 piles of high explosives ranging from a couple of hundred pounds, 91 kilograms, to 60,000 pounds, 27 metric tons. The largest, the Loch Nagar mine, sprung from a tunnel that had been dug to a depth of 95 feet, 29 meters, to avoid the many German counter-mining tunnels that were used to attack them. When the vast pile of aminol explosive was detonated, it left a crater 300 feet, 90 metres across, and 90 feet, some 30 metres deep. An 18-year-old Royal Flying Corps pilot who witnessed the vast explosion wrote, We were over Thiepval and turned south to watch the mines. As we sailed down above all came the final moment. Zero. At Boissel, the earth heaved and flashed. A tremendous and magnificent column rose up into the sky. There was an ear-splitting roar, drowning all the guns, flinging the machine sideways in the repercussing air. The earthly column rose higher and higher to almost 4,000 feet. There it hung, or seemed to hang for a moment in the air like a silhouette of some giant cypress tree, then fell away in a widening cone of dust and debris. 
A moment later came the second mine, again the roar, the upflung machine, the strange gaunt silhouette invading the sky. Then the dust cleared, and we saw the two white eyes of the craters. The barrage had lifted to the second-line trenches. The infantry were over the top. The attack had begun. Next day we were up at 3am and took to the air at 4, dawn over the trenches, everything misty and still above, with the prospect of heat to come. Even the war seemed to pause, taking a deep, cool morning breath before plunging into action. We were out to find the exact position at Boissel, for even now, on the fourth day of the offensive, the Corps intelligence did not seem clear on the point. We sailed over the mines and called for flares with our klaxon. After a minute, one solitary flare spurted up, crimson, from the lip of the crater. It looked forlorn, that solitary little beacon in the immense pitted miles of earth around. We came down to 500 feet and sailed over it, trying to distinguish the crouching khaki figures huddled in their improvised trenches in the khaki-coloured earth. It was not easy. We crossed the crater, going north, wheeled south again to come back over it, when suddenly there was a crash and the whole machine shook as if the next moment it would wrench itself into pieces. I thought I'd been hit by a passing shell. In a flash, I pulled back the throttle and switched off. The vibration lessened, but we still shook fearfully. Now, wet land, 500 feet over the front line, the earth an expanse of continuous shell holes. We should certainly crash, perhaps catch fire right on the line. Such thoughts raced through my head as I looked frantically for some spot less battered than the rest. Th there was a place, right underneath me. I dived at it, and the speed of the machine rose to a hundred miles an hour. Of course, we could never hope to stay in that one green patch. We should overshoot, crash into the trenches beyond. But at five hundred feet, there's no time to change your mind. You select your spot for better or worse and stick to it. So we dived. What's the matter? shouted Pip from behind me. Cylinder blown off, I think, I shouted. Undo your belt, I yelled. I didn't want him to be pinioned under the machine when it caught fire, if it did catch fire. By now we were down to a hundred feet, and the contours of the earth below took on a detailed shape. I saw... God be praised, that the green patch that had caught my eye was the side of a steep hill. There was no wind. I swung the machine sideways and pulled her round to head up the slope. She zoomed grandly up the hillside. The speed lessened. Now we were just over the ground, swooping uphill like a seagull on a steep Devon plough. Back and back I pulled the stick. The hill rose up before me, and at last she stalled, perched like a bird on the only patch of the hill free of shell craters, hopped three yards, and stopped intact. With a gasp of amazement and relief, for no one could have hoped to have got down in such a place undamaged, 
we jumped out of the machine. It was Pip's 21st birthday. Suddenly I remembered it. Many happy returns, I said. The days of the Royal Flying Corps' dominance with the Sopworth Camel and the SE-5A were still a long way off, and the outdated pusher-driven aircraft of the time, the DH-2 and two-seat FE-2B, were at a distinct disadvantage. The Germans had already developed an interrupter gear that allowed forward-firing guns to shoot safely through the propeller arc. In the Fokker Eindecker, pilots such as Immelmann were able to develop their tactics until they became known as the Fokker Scourge. In response, Trenchard at the head of the Royal Flying Corps stated, Until the Royal Flying Corps is in possession of a machine as good as or better than the German Fokker, it seems that a change in policy and tactics has become necessary. It is hoped very shortly to obtain a machine that will be able to successfully engage the Fokkers at present in use by the Germans. In the meantime, it must be laid down as a hard and fast rule that a machine proceeding on reconnaissance must be escorted by at least three other fighting machines. In response, the RFC introduced formations that allowed aircraft to give supporting fire that deterred many German pilots – one of whom stated, Die Technik und Taktik der Engländer war verblüffend. The techniques and tactics of the English were amazing, the main principle being that each machine could not look after itself but its partner. Each one therefore protected the other against any attack by German opponents and each pair tried to attack the same foreman. The Englishmen refused to be rushed and their steadiness gave them an absolute superiority. There were, of course, those who felt that the German pilots had the advantage, as a young pilot on 32 Squadron remarked, I know, I feel very uncomfortable with two HA well above me, and in spite of the fact that I climbed to about 13,500 feet, they were still above, which is very demoralising. We shall have to bring out some very fine machines next year if we're to keep up with them. Their scouts are very much better than ours now, on average. The good old days of July and August, when two or three DH-2s used to push half a dozen Huns onto the chimney tots of Bapalma no more. In the Roland, they possessed their finest two-seater machine in the world, and now they have introduced a few of their single-seater ideas, and very good they are too. One specimen especially deserves mention. They are manned by jolly good pilots, probably the best, and the juggling they can do when they are scrapping is quite remarkable. They can fly round and round a DH-2 and make one look quite silly. The Bristol fighter didn't fare much better. We could see no signs of the formation, so we made for the lines and picked up three of our escort, about two miles this side of the lines. Of the other escort, we never saw anything, and after waiting about ten minutes, we decided to go over with the other three machines, and as we knew we were faster than they, we were going to circle round after every half minute or so to allow them to catch up. We went in over Pierre St. Vastwood, and we started taking our photographs with two of our machines sitting on our tail, and the third a little under us. 
It was then I noticed how strong the wind was, which was blowing approximately from the southwest, and which kept blowing us further over. After taking our third photograph, I saw that we had drawn far away from our escorting machines, and so I signalled to Lucas to turn round, and we turned into the wind. It was then, as we were halfway round, that one enemy machine came out of the clouds for our tail. We had to turn to meet him, but as we were firing at him, two more machines dropped out of the clouds onto our tail, firing steadily. The first blew half our service tank away, so Lucas swung around and put a nose down for our lines. I fired away over the top plane, but they did a very good job shooting and our machine was simply riddled with bullets. Suddenly the machine started side-slipping violently, and at the same time the engine gave a jar and stopped dead. Looking down, I saw that Lucas was bending down in his seat, and thinking that he was working with his switches, I put out my hand to shake him. But then I discovered that he was hit through the back of the head and was unconscious. At this time, we must have been at about 6,000 feet, and so I set to work to try and get his left foot off the rudder bar as she was still side-slipping. This I eventually managed to do, but at this time we were only about 3,000 feet, and I saw the three German machines were still on our tail firing away. I saw that with a headwind and no engine, we could not hope to reach the line, as we were then over Hapling Court. So uh, to avoid the machine guns, we were also being fired at from the ground, I put her down very steeply. Unfortunately, Lucas had slipped off his seat, and when I tried to land, I found that I could not flatten out. The undercarriage was swept off, and she crashed on the wing. I was thrown clear, and Lucas was brought in a few minutes later, but never recovered consciousness and died about 4 p.m. The Germans buried Lucas that night, with due ceremony, in a little cemetery just half a mile outside Hapling Court. A pilot from 22 Squadron described his last mission. I left the aerodrome, carrying two 20-pound Hales bombs. When I reached a height of 8,000 feet, I crossed the German lines in the sector between Albert and the Somme. I remember releasing one of the bombs, but I don't remember the target. From that moment on, I remember nothing until I regained consciousness in a German field hospital on July the 7th. I was wounded by a machine-gun bullet entering my back between the spine and shoulder blade, and it travelled in a downward direction, lodging in my diaphragm. I was unconscious for six days from concussion caused by my machine crashing. His wound was very painful, and to his amazement and apprehension he discovered that he was to have an operation without general anaesthetic. No ether cup was to waft him into insensibility, no chloroform on a handkerchief to dull his brain to the surgeon's knife. In due course he was dumped onto an operating table and a hypodermic needle jabbed repeatedly into the region of his wound. Local numbness resulted 
and the German surgeons started in to mend four broken ribs in the gaping hole in his side. A combat report from 60 Squadron described another fight. We were at about 8,000 feet, and just before reaching Cambria, we were at about 9,000 feet, when I suddenly saw a large formation of machines about our height coming from the sun towards us. There must have been at least 12. They were two-seaters, led by one Fokker monoplane, and followed by two others. I'm sure they were not contemplating war at all, but Ferdy pointed us towards them and led us straight in. My next impressions were rather mixed. I seemed to be surrounded by Huns in two-seaters. I remember diving on one, pulling out of the dive, and then swerving as another came for me. I can recollect also looking down and seeing a moraine about 800 feet below me, going down in a slow spiral, with a Fokker hovering above it, following every turn. I dived on the Fokker, who swallowed the bait and came after me, but unsuccessfully, as I had taken care to pull out of my dive while still above him. The moraine I watched gliding down under control, doing perfect turns to about 2,000 feet when I lost sight of it. I thought he must have been hid in the engine. After an indecisive combat with the Fokker, I turned home, the two-seaters having disappeared. I landed at Vert Galant and reported that Ferdy had gone down under control. We all thought he was a prisoner, but heard soon afterwards that he had landed safely but died of wounds that night, having been hit during the scrap. In the churned earth below the aircraft, much of the hoped success of the Somme depended on the accurate use of long-range artillery. In this, the RFC was a vital asset to spot the fall of shells, and when the RFC had been unable to fly, artillery commanders anxious to prepare the battlefield had compensated by the expedience of firing twice as many shells in the general direction of the target. This was done in the hope that the greater weight of fire would increase the chance of hitting the target. It had been nothing more than optimism and a waste of ammunition. The Somme was the first large-scale battle in which it could be said that Britain began the full application of its air power capabilities. The Somme offensive was perhaps the starting point at which the generals began to understand the vast improvement that proper integration could achieve. It does not seem unreasonable to suggest that it was the first proper proving ground upon which the formidably effective air-land cooperation seen in the final battles of the war would be built. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find out all about that at AirlinePilotGuy.com. And if you're enjoying Plane Tales, then how about leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Many thanks for listening.